Greetings and salutations, my esteemed guests. You've reached the darkest depths of the scuzzy podcast world with the Nasty Pasty Podcast, a weekly rant and rave about films just waiting to deprave. I'm your malignant host, Andy Roberts, a Welshman who was corrupted many years ago by the stench and depravity of horror DVDs and videos way back when. For once, that statement is at least partially true. I have been watching horror films since I was around six years old, as I was given free command over the VHS player and have never looked back, though I have upgraded by now to Blu-ray and 4K. The premise of this show is rather simple. I look at two films based on similar themes, all of which are from the period of 1960 to 1990, as the hallowed video nasties are from this particular era. The nasties, of course, are a quintessentially British concoction, being a term referring to potentially obscene horror films back in the 1980s that were able to be distributed and spread across the country with careless abandon, with no censorship or regulation in effect. Spurred on by religious busybodies and right-wing newspapers, the Conservative government at the time thought it could redeem itself from the mass unemployment, riots and company closures that it was inflicting on its people by humouring the topic of the day and vowing to save us all from the vile contaminants of horror videos. I mean, it worked. Having many innocent people put in prison or fined ruined the whole video business for many years and it prevented us all from watching a forbidden fruit list of films, most of which were rather crap anyway. Many years later, the wizard's curtain has dropped, exposing the farce for exactly what it was, though the government, as always, have suffered no ill consequence, and they continue to whip out moral panics whenever they need to distract us from their shortcomings. Hence Brexit, ladies and gentlemen. But enough about them, though. This show continually aims to highlight the utter stupidity of those times by looking at material that was on the shelves at the same time that was notably left out of the official hit list formulated by the government. I continually ask why on this show, as a lot of the stuff was just as bad, if not worse in some cases, and rarely I get a treat when it turns out that there were other examples that weren't listed on the Video Nasties list that the police just decided to seize anyway. Today's episode features two productions which concern reworkings or reimaginings of classic monsters. Unlike our previous episode on the classic monster, where we covered Island of Mutations and Spookies, The two films today are rather different interpretations of the tried and trusted universal monster archetypes. Today's films are The Beast Within from Philippe Mora and Blood for Dracula from Paul Morrissey, both of them very different interpretations of universal monsters, the werewolf and the vampire respectively. We'll do the werewolf first with 1982's The Beast Within.
In the 60s, a newly married couple, Caroline and Eli, are driving to their honeymoon destination when their car flings a tyre cover, forcing Eli to hike back towards a gas station for help. In a nearby house, a creature chained in a basement gets loose and wanders the woodlands nearby. As Caroline's dog becomes agitated, she lets it out, only for pained yelps to be heard when the strange creature attacks it. Caroline spots the creature over her dog's corpse and flees towards the car, only to knock herself out when she runs into a tree. The monster locates her and, tearing her clothes off, rapes her as she's unconscious. Eli returns with the tow truck and rescues his wife from the woodlands. Seventeen years later, Caroline and Eli are at a doctor's appointment for their son Michael, the product of Caroline's attack, who has developed an alarmingly overactive pituitary gland, causing rapid metabolism and growth, and strange visions of the house from the opening. To determine the cause of Michael's problems, Eli and Caroline return to the town where the attack happened, a small town called Nioba, but find local Judge Kerwin to be unhelpful, while a newspaper editor called Edwin allows Caroline to browse through the archives, where she finds an article about the death of a man called Lionel at the same time as her assault. When Edwin discovers that she's taken the article, he warns the judge about the couple, with clearly something to hide. Asking the sheriff about Lionel's killing, they discover that he was ripped apart and his house destroyed, though they could not find the culprit. Back at the hospital, Michael has left his bed and driven off towards Nioba, suffering intense head pains. He then enters the old house from his visions and converses with someone he believes is locked in the basement, before wandering towards Edwin's home, where he's mistaken as a delivery boy. Becoming more visibly disturbed, Michael kills Edwin by biting and devouring his throat open. After a neighbour called Amanda locates him unconscious outside, a local doctor alerts Caroline and Eli to their son's presence, where he seems to have improved. The next day, Judge Kerwin speaks with a man called Dexter and becomes aware that Edwin's newspaper office isn't open. Going to his house, the judge finds Edwin's eaten corpse, and as a result, the sheriff asks to see Caroline, Eli and the doctor. Michael, meanwhile, recovers and goes to see Amanda to thank her for what she did. Going for a walk near a bog, the two begin to bond quite quickly, until Michael becomes overtaken by visions again, somehow knowing who Amanda's father is. The pair kiss when he recovers, but they're interrupted when Amanda's dog unearths a severed arm. As the police comb the area, Amanda's father Horace turns up and violently seizes his daughter from Michael, warning him to leave her alone. When Eli questions his behaviour, the sheriff informs him that Horace murdered his wife and lover a few years ago, but was acquitted as he's related to the judge. Later that night, Eli and the sheriff locate over 30 sets of bones in the ground near the bog, which the doctor confirms to have been gnawed on, and a lady called Emily he recognises as someone supposed to be buried. As the doctor explains that Lionel used to be the undertaker, Eli, the doctor and the sheriff go to see Dexter, who's the current caretaker, but he's purposefully evasive about Emily's burial. The three leave with the intention of uncovering Emily's grave, while Michael wanders the streets and talks to a drunk called Tom as though he knows him, though the drunk becomes nervous and addresses him back as Billy. Explaining that he used to pretend with Billy that they could cast shamanic magic and change into someone else, Michael seemingly acknowledges that that's true, and that he is Billy and has returned for all the Kerwin family. Dexter phones the judge, anxious that the truth will be discovered that he's hiding, only for Michael to sneak into the building and pretend to be one of the corpses, stabbing him to death with one of the formaldehyde needles. Inside Emily's grave, the trio find only rocks, so they return to Dexter's office, only to discover his dead body, embalmed while alive, with all the corpses inside partially devoured. Michael, meanwhile, has sneaked inside Amanda's house, and seems to be about to attack her, only for his parents and the sheriff to get there first. The next morning, Michael blurts out that Billy is his father, as the doctor explains that a second layer of skin appears to be forming underneath Michael's skin. Tom tells the sheriff that Billy is the culprit of the murders, through Michael's body, and tells Eli the same, both of whom disbelieve him. Shortly afterwards, Tom is killed by Michael, who believes that he betrayed him by dropping him onto a power generator. After finding out from the doctor that Billy was very similar to Michael in personality, Eli and Caroline are visited by the sheriff, who wants to speak with Michael about Tom's death. Going to Amanda again, Michael tries to warn her to run away, but becomes overcome with murderous lust and throws himself from a window to save her life. Becoming hospitalised again, Michael begs to be killed before it gets too late, explaining that in Lionel's cellar there's something that will explain. They find Billy's skeleton in the basement, while back at the hospital, Horace and the judge arrive to kill Michael. 
who instead undergoes a horrific transformation in front of them, splitting his skin and head open to reveal a monstrous humanoid Billy underneath, which kills Horace and then escapes into the woods. Eli, Caroline and the Sheriff pursue him into the woods, only to find the remains of Michael's skin completely shedded. The judge, paranoid that he's next, begins to make preparations to leave, only to be attacked by the monstrous Billy. Barricading himself in the doctor's office with Eli, the sheriff, the doctor and Caroline, the judge is forced to explain the reason behind Billy's rage. Lionel, the judge's brother, was married to a woman called Sarah who had an affair with Billy. Upon discovering this, Lionel murdered Sarah and kept Billy locked up, starving him and feeding him only corpses supplied by the town's undertaker. One night, Billy escaped and raped Caroline before being shot by Lionel and his brothers. Managing to savage Lionel to death, Billy then crawled back into the basement and died. The office is then attacked by Billy, who rips through a cell wall and tears the judge's head clean off, before escaping into the woods. In a manner almost exactly like 17 years ago, Billy comes across Amanda, who's crashed her car earlier, and rapes her before being chased off. Caroline and Eli find Billy's exhausted body, just as he attacks Eli and nearly kills him. Caroline, however, aims the shotgun and blasts Billy dead, finally ending the creature's life. He had to take Billy and lock him up in that cellar. And he kept him there, and he kept him there, and he kept him there, and he kept him there. Till Billy couldn't stand it anymore. Till he was starving. And then Lionel. He opened up that cellar door. And he says, Billy, Billy, you still want her? Well, now you can have her. And he throws her body down. After that, it was easy. Lionel, the town undertaker. Robbing his own coffins to feed Billy his flesh, the human flesh Billy needed to live. It was easy. And you all covered for it. No, no. Not till Dexter found, found his body. He found it all. Jesus Christ, man, I didn't even know about your wife. But he got out. And he attacked my wife, you son of a bitch. The Beast Within is such a complicated monster of a film, bearing most massive familiarity to other similar films, but having such a contrasting subject matter and opposing elements that it does feel rather unique on some levels. It's essentially a werewolf movie, except it strips back almost everything related to lycanthropy, leaving those silver vulnerabilities and moon-related lunacy for a much more bizarre wraparound theme. Cicadas, shamanism, cannibalism and native revenge. The movie has a bit of a convoluted origin, whereby the film was based on a novel written by Edward Levy. Similarly titled The Beast Within, the novel was from the point of view of Jimmy Connors, who stumbles onto a farmyard run by married couple Henry and Sarah. Intensely religious, Henry neglects his wife as he believes all sexual activity is sinful, and when Jimmy turns up to seek shelter, he seduces Sarah, leading to Henry murdering his wife and locking Jimmy in the basement of his house for an extended period of time. He's given very little positive attention, fed only the measliest of scraps, and is beaten harshly. Eventually, over time, Jimmy forgets who he is and becomes completely feral and emaciated, only existing as a rageful animal. Henry soon dies, and it forces the animal to try and escape its bondage, eventually succeeding and coming across the home of Eli and Carolyn. As Carolyn is alone, the beast knocks her out as it sentences her as a predator, and due to his human instincts being buried deep down, he desires sexual activity and rapes her while she's unconscious. It then wanders off to find food and perishes after being bitten by a venomous snake. 
Many years later, Caroline and Eli are unaware of the rape and they assume that their son Michael is their own child. They begin to have issues as he grows up, as he wanders outside at night in some sort of trance, where the animals react to his strange behaviour. It all gets worse when adolescence hits, as he begins to take a liking for a girl at school, but is struggling to contain a murderous rage. After killing a boy at school who bullied him, Michael tries to run away with his girlfriend, but when it transpires that she lives in Henry's old home, he becomes completely possessed by the spirit of Jimmy, attacking everyone in sight. The novel ends with Eli and Carolyn locking him back in the basement of Henry's house, praying that one day he'll recover from his ailment. Apart from the ultimate differences from the novel to the film, the novel's rights were purchased before Levy had even published the book. And to make matters worse, by the time the film went into production, the novel was in an indefinite hiatus, as Edward Levy was going through a divorce and he halted his writing. The novel was therefore completed after the film had already completed filming, so there's an almost symbiotic relationship that the two different entities actually had. The novel, of course, seems to explore themes about how historic crime and abuse can almost pass itself genetically, whereby a parent who has criminal tendencies can almost pass on the genetic capability to be a criminal to their offspring. This theory has been studied quite a while over the years, and it's never been ultimately concluded to be true or false. Jimmy's suffering is so extensive that it near condenses itself in the act of rape, which then carries Jimmy's thoughts, feelings and desire for revenge to be passed on to his son Michael. The film, however, takes this in a rather different direction, whilst exploring the same theme. Rather than a spirit transferring to a child through happenstance and coincidence, the antagonist Billy is a Native American who suffered the same sort of abuse at the hands of Lionel, though with the added grisliness of being fed corpses to stimulate his feral nature in a more pronounced fashion. Due to his cultural background and deeper communion with the earth and the woodlands, Billy purposefully uses the power of the cicada to ensure his rebirth through Michael, utilising what I assume to be a shamanic spell. It's a little bit ropey as an explanation, and it doesn't come without its pros and cons, but it's at least an interesting take on the original narrative. Eli and Caroline are made outsiders to further enhance the hostility between locals and outsiders, which is a rather strong theme of proceedings as the initial confrontation of Billy and Lionel was based on that very same thing. Michael's adolescence is still the trigger for his strange behaviour, though in the film it seems that this is the first instance of anything odd happening in his life. The act of rape is also known by the protagonists from the beginning, adding a more tragic dimension to Eli having to confront his son, whom he actually has no blood ties to. Billy actually has an objective too in the film, rather than just being a side effect of Michael's birth, and the denouement is completely different, bearing a much more werewolf-like resolution to proceedings. By 1982, the werewolf film was coming back in popularity at an alarming rate, Spain had given us 1970's Walpurgis Night, which kick-started a Paul Nashie-led series of Wolfman movies, all the way up until 1980's Return of the Wolfman. The British film The Beast Must Die from 1974 also concerned werewolves, and at the dawn of the 80s we probably had the most famous examples of werewolf horror. 1981's American Werewolf in London from John Landis, and then Joe Dante's The Howling. Both of these catapulted werewolf horror into the public eye, which I think is the main reason that The Beast Within resembles them so much. For one, it has the initial werewolf attack, so to speak, though in this case The Beast has attacked Michael's mother. The violent act in this case, however, is not a bite or a scratch, it's the rape which leads to the pseudo-lycanthropic transformation. This element, though, of transferring a curse or a monstrous infection is not new, however. It was done with vampires in 1972's Grave of the Vampire, whereby a woman is raped by a vampire and her son then begins to feed on blood from an early age, having had the vampirism transferred. It has the protagonist struggling with his transformation and becoming slowly aware of his condition, which is evidenced by Michael undergoing psychosis and suffering delusions and also visions of Billy's life. As is the case in most werewolf movies, the wolf has a love interest whom he desires to protect, and most importantly, it has that gruesome transformation sequence. Though in this case it's a half-human, half-cicada, but it's an all-alien type look, really. All of the elements are there for another entry of werewolf lore, but it's all discarded for a quite unique brand of the legend. The plot combines heavy elements of lycanthropy, like the cyclical moments of madness, the desire to kill and eat other humans, 
a transformation into a monster, and even the sexual tones of the film, which correlates with the werewolf myth often being interpreted as an allegory of sexual violence. What they throw into the mix, though, is a dose of the Wendigo myth, which is a monster from Algonquin cultures that appears as a humanoid monster or a human possessed by a malevolent spirit. The gist of the creature is that it's continually hungry for human flesh, appearing gaunt and emaciated as a result, perpetrating horrific taboo crimes to achieve its goal of eating human meat. Even today, there's a mental illness described as Wendigo psychosis, whereby the patient has an overwhelming desire to eat human flesh, but is deathly afraid of becoming a cannibal. The description of Billy as emaciated and driven mad has many similarities to the Wendigo legend, and the modern psychological parallels with mental illness are reflected in the doctor's continual diagnoses of Michael as being badly ill, with an overactive pituitary gland and a strange subcutaneous growth. The element of the cicadas is interesting, despite Michael's transformation into Billy not really resembling such a creature, but it really brings to the fore the Native American shaman element of being so in tune with animals and nature that he's able to grasp the regenerative qualities of the insect to be reborn in another body. In reality, most cicadas' life cycles only last about two to five years, but one in particular, the Magis cicada, has a unique 17-year cycle, so there are often swarms every 17 years, much like the plot point of Billy awakening shortly after Michael's 17th birthday. In Chinese culture as well, the cicada is a symbol of rebirth and deception, so much so that shedding the golden cicada skin is a phrase used to describe when you fooled your enemies. The story itself is quite simple, but it ends up being quite confused, mainly by the film's focus shifting quite abruptly from one character to another. Eli and Caroline are the de facto protagonists of the film, which creates a conflict almost right away, as Michael is the subject of the transformations, so the audience would be expected to follow him on his journey. But this isn't the case, however, and we witness his suffering from an outside perspective. It also doesn't help that the first time we see Michael, he's already ill and beginning his psychosis, so it's hard to feel attached or caring about him as the monstrous Michael is the only character that we've experienced. That's not to say that Michael's character isn't effective. I mean, he's played with a degree of believable angst and suppressed anger, enough to portray a really conflicted person who's struggling with a force beyond his control. The fact that he's smack dab in the middle of puberty may also lend another layer of subtext that adolescence, you know, holds no prisoners and can be characterised as internalised violence just waiting to break free. The secretive townspeople, however, like the Kerwins, are archetypes of that very suspicious small-town vibe of Northern America. The clash between city folks and country folks is a frequent trope of horror, but even more so here with an ancestral issue between Native Americans and modern Americans. The town is even wreathed in fog when the McLearys arrive, suggesting that deception and secrecy are just normal for the town of Nioba. With the exception of Amanda, the sheriff and the doctor, the townspeople are on the whole portrayed as rather unhelpful at best and horrendous nasty pieces of work at worst. Edwin, for example, is quite a grim figure, seeming to have an issue with keeping to his lunch on time and talking constantly about how he likes his meat cooked. Dexter is corrupt, having been complicit in supplying Lionel with dead bodies, and the judge is probably the worst of all, having got his cousin Horace off scot-free after he blatantly murdered his own wife. The entire Kerwin family are symptomatic of corruption in law and order, able to do whatever they want without any repercussions. Until Billy, of course, who made it his dying wish to return and kill them, all for their complicitness in what's happened. It's only unfortunate, rather, that Billy has become utterly bloodthirsty over the years, even murdering his best friend Tom through Michael, and then raping Amanda in the film's finale, hinting that he will indeed be reborn once more into the future. There's clearly a moral dilemma too with Caroline and Eli, in which they have to stop the remains of their son going on a rampage. It's ultimately left to Caroline when the beast attacks Eli, so she shoots the monster dead with a shotgun. It could even be argued that the film is actually Caroline's journey from being sexually assaulted until the end where she gets to dispense justice finally. Although it's actually rather indicative of today's world too, as she has to endure cover-ups, lengthy issues and a whole host of work to even find out who the perpetrator of her rape was, much like a modern victim would. And ultimately the end of the ordeal doesn't come without sacrifice, as the McLearys have now lost their son forever and the events that led them to this moment may not even be over. 
The Beast Within is not exactly run-of-the-mill, but like any good horror film, it packs in some memorable scenes of violence along the way, like Michael tearing into Edwin's neck and eating his flesh as he struggles on the floor among minced meat. We're treated to Dexter being stabbed and giving an impromptu embalming whilst alive, during which Michael has feasted on some of the corpses in the morgue. Tom is thrown onto a power bank and electrocuted, whilst Horace gets his just desserts, finally by being torn apart by the newly reborn Billy. Finally, the corrupt judge has his head literally pulled off through a broken wall, giving us a splash of the gore that we so desperately want. Originally, this scene showed blood splashing over the cell toilet, but it was apparently too much for the MPAA, so they scrapped that bit. One of the other recognisable bits of the film is the infamous transformation, which was achieved using the usual air sacs being inflated underneath makeup to make the face seem like it's swelling up. Michael's head basically swells to the size of a couple of melons, before the skin tears and reveals a bulbous alien-like creature underneath. It doesn't really scream cicada to me, so I just assume it's a malformed humanoid, as though Billy has been reborn prematurely, shall we say. It's not as effective as the transformation from American Werewolf, or the howling of course, but it is memorable for being so protracted, and hey, anything with practical effects gets my vote anytime. In conclusion, The Beast Within is a real blend of almost every horror trope you can think of. It's essentially a werewolf movie, but it sheds its skin very quickly to become a pastiche of classic horror tropes wrapped in a 1970s aesthetic. It's worth checking out, if only to see the first and only Were Cicada movie. Eli was played by actor Ronnie Cox, who's most recognisable for his villainous roles as the main antagonist of Paul Verhoeven's films, namely Robocop and Total Recall. He's also made memorable appearances in Deliverance, Beverly Hills Cop 1 and 2, and the 1990 version of Captain America. Bibi Besch, who played Caroline, was an Austrian actress who'd had a wide range of roles in films over the years. She started in American TV shows from the 50s onwards, and she made appearances in Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan, The Day After, and also Tremors. The Disturbed Michael was played by Paul Clemens, who appeared in Promises in the Dark and the 2008 short The Horribly Slow Murderer with the Extremely Inefficient Weapon. He also notably did the special effects on the horror film One Dark Night, as well as the genie-themed slasher The Lamp. Judge Kerwin was played by actor Don Gordon, who'd been in 1972's Slaughter, The Towering Inferno, Lethal Weapon and The Exorcist 3. Veteran actor R.G. Armstrong played the Doctor, whom we've seen before in Children of the Corn, and he was also notably in the video nasty Evil Speak. The horrendous character of Horace was played by actor John Dennis Johnston, who's had small roles in 48 Hours, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and The Twilight Zone the movie. Lastly, there was Deputy Herbert, who was played by Meshach Taylor, who'd been in The Omen 2, The Howling, and 1987's Mannequin. Now, the director was a Frenchman called Philippe Mora, who went on to direct much more explicitly lycanthropic horror films, namely 1985's Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, and Howling 3, The Marsupials. The film, based on the novel by Edward Levy, was written by Tom Holland, which was one of his first jobs after doing some work in TV. He later went on to Class of 1984, Psycho 2, Fright Night 1 and 2, Child's Play, and the 1996 Stephen King adaptation, Thinner. Producer Harvey Bernard had worked on The Omen, The Omen 2, and Omen 4, as well as The Goonies and The Lost Boys. Jack B. Bernstein later worked on 1992's Under Siege, while the last producer, Ron Fury, was mostly an assistant director and production manager who worked on Howling 2, Your Sister's a Werewolf, Dark Angel, and Fade to Black. The rather classical soundtrack was provided by veteran Les Baxter, whom we've already encountered on Frogs and Black Sunday. The cinematography was done by Jack L. Richards, who worked as both a camera operator and a director on photography, on stuff like 1974's black exploitation zombie film, Sugar Hill, and also Omen 2. The editor, Robert Brown, also worked on Omen 2, as well as The Amityville Horror, Police Academy, The Lost Boys, Flatliners, Lethal Weapon 3, and Free Willy 2. He was assisted by Bert Lovett, who worked on Predator 2, Robocop 3, and Cutthroat Island. The special effects were done by quite a large team, including Tom Herber, who worked on My Bloody Valentine, Heaven's Gate, and Cat People. Another, called Melanie Levitt, had worked on The Candy Snatchers, Spaceballs, Hook, and even Wes Craven's Scream. 
There was also Thomas R. Berman, whom we mentioned as working on Frogs a few months back, and also Halloween 3 quite a while ago. He also worked on Food of the Gods, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and The Exterminator, amongst other things. Finally, there was Gary Elmendorf, who was arguably the most successful of the special effects bunch, working on The Deer Hunter, Hook, Broken Arrow, The Relic, Spawn, Snake Eyes, The Sixth Sense, The Core, Anchorman, Talladega Nights, Fast and Furious 5, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Terminator Genesis, Fantastic Four, Logan, and most recently, The Greatest Showman. The Beast Within was released in February of 1982 across US theatres where it grossed $1.25 million on its opening weekend, eventually garnering nearly $8 million by the time its run was finished. It didn't get cinematic exhibition in the UK though for some reason, but it did receive a pre-cert VHS release in 1985, just before the Video Recordings Act was coming into effect. It's unlikely that the film would have been seized upon as the cover but didn't really suggest anything contentious and the print used by Warner Home Video was actually a cut print, missing a minute and seven seconds of footage, including trims to the rape scenes, Edwin's death and subsequent body discovery and also the judge's decapitation. The Warner Home Video version though was officially certified in 1986 at 18 so this cut version was the only officially available copy until many years later in 2014 when the wonderful Arrow Video restored the film uncut on both DVD and Blu-ray. It's now available in multiple formats across Europe and the Americas. So that was The Beast Within. Let's mosey on down to the next instalment of today's Classics with a Twist. Paul Morrissey's Blood for Dracula. A seemingly rich man dabs makeup on himself as well as hair dye on his clearly aged hair before retiring to the fireplace. The man, known as Count Dracula, is brought his sister, Herberta, by his servant Anton, who informs him that due to the lack of virgins in the area, the Count must soon move from Romania. Suggesting Italy as there will be an abundance of virgins due to the Catholicism, Anton suggests leaving most of the family in the vaults to survive without blood and after packing some basic supplies in the Count's coffin, the pair depart for Italy. In Italy, the wealthy De Fiore family reside in a colossal mansion, headed up by the Marquisa and the Marquise, with their four daughters, Esmeralda, Sophia, Rabinia and Perla. 
As three of them, barring Esmeralda, go in the gardens to work, Sephiria and Rabinia begin to act very lasciviously, stripping off their clothes only to get scalded by their mother, the Marquisa. Soon, a worker called Maria rocks up and mentions an arrangement that the girls have with him, implied to be sexual, while shortly afterwards, the Count arrives in town at a local inn in order to find a room. After chatting to the innkeeper, Anton finds out about the De Fiore family, but Dracula seems to be despondent when his room lets in a lot of light and has a crucifix inside it. Anton assures him that he will do his best for him, leaving the Count to have a little fit on the bed. The Marquisa explains to her husband that the Count is an eligible bachelor to their daughters, raising concerns that they're running out of money to maintain their social standing. Anton visits the De Fiore household and successfully gains their trust, earning an invitation to stay with them to meet the daughters. He continues on to the inn, however, asking for more information on the family, and has a run-in with a group of workers who challenge him to a mimicry game, which he loses, causing a fight. It's interrupted, however, when a little girl outside is found killed by a car, but Anton uses the opportunity to soak a piece of bread in her blood to give to the sickly Dracula as her purity was guaranteed. The Marquise informs his daughters of Dracula's impending visit, but Sephiria and Rabinia are much more interested in having sex with Mario later that night and with each other. After them being told of the Count, Mario explains that they'll have to do something as it's only a matter of time before a revolution happens and they'll lose everything they own. Dracula arrives and makes a good impression on the Marquise and the Marquisa, but the daughters are considerably less enthusiastic, especially Sephiria, whom Dracula seems to have his eye on, who reacts by moaning to Mario about how ugly he is. Though she seems to have no other way out, Mario sexually assaults her to try and teach her that she can show her talent to the Count, only for her to say that she loves Mario. Going into another little fit, Dracula tells Anton that he must drink virgin's blood tonight, and soon, Sephiria brings in his dinner. He verifies that she's a virgin, causing her to lie about it, so he then bites her neck and drinks her blood. Due to her non-virgin status, however, Dracula becomes very ill and vomits up the blood in the bathroom, becoming weaker as a result. Rubinia is rather delighted at not being in line for Dracula's marriage, and makes love to Mario. The next morning, Sephiria is alive, but looks very unwell, while the Marquisa insists that the other daughters make an effort to save their reputation in front of the Count. Mario makes it clear his opinion of the upper classes to Dracula, who refutes his beliefs that anything could change. Rubinia, after an abusive encounter with Mario, decides to give Dracula a chance and talks to him in the bathroom, where he asks if she's a virgin. After she lies about this, she suddenly realises that he has no reflection, causing him to lunge and bite her neck. As before, he vomits up the tainted blood and is closer to death than ever. Anton explains to the Marquisa that he and Count Dracula are leaving the next morning, due to both daughters ultimately not being virginal, which disappoints her. Mario tells Perla that he's suspicious of the Count, while Esmeralda bonds with Dracula and tells him of the family troubles. Sephiria and Rabinia wander the house, appearing to be under some sort of spell, while Mario pries open the coffin belonging to Dracula and finds it empty. Going into Perla's room, the two bitten sisters check for her virginity and try to force her to see the Count against her will, but she manages to escape to Mario. Declaring his findings and his conclusion that Dracula is a vampire, Mario rapes Perla to protect her from Dracula's attentions, though afterwards the Count does lick up the blood droplets of Perla's hymen breaking. Informing the Marquisa of Sephiria and Rabinia's condition, Mario makes a plan to kill Dracula with an axe, only to encounter Esmeralda, who's acting strangely. As Mario destroys Dracula's coffin, Anton and the Count run away through the house. Anton encounters the Marquisa, whom he stabs to death, but not before she's able to shoot him dead with a gun. In a prolonged chase, Dracula has his arms lopped off with Mario's axe, and his leg chopped off before Esmeralda rushes outside, bearing vampiric fangs of her own. Deciding to just quickly stake him, Mario destroys Dracula with a wooden pole, before Esmeralda falls on top of him in despair, staking herself and destroying the vampiric threat once and for all. You know that man, Gilles, who runs the hotel in town? I just had a very strange telephone call from him. He ran into the secretary of some middle European count who's staying there. We don't know what country he's from. They're going all over the Italian countryside looking for a wife for this count. So Gilles mentioned us to him because of the girls. 
Esmeralda, I don't think we'll ever get her married off. But Safira. Hmm. Safira's the right age. She should get married, don't you think? My dear, we are not in the Middle Ages. We can't force them. We must be civilized in these matters. When the right moment comes, everything will work out. Everything will work out. That's so like you. You always say everything will work out. The girls know they don't have to do anything they don't want to do. I do everything. I do the cleaning. I do the cooking. I have no servants left except for that handyman. We must do something to bring new money into the family and save our home. It breaks my heart to see the walls peeling, dust everywhere, the furniture so shabby. This count may be the most important thing that's happened to us in years. We must make the girls understand how important a marriage like this can be to us. Why should we do that? Flowers that are too cultivated lose some of their perfume. They will abhor quickly. In this house, one can say the most intelligent, most poetic things, and nobody takes any notice. <laughs> Abroad, I'd be far more appreciated. I think I'll go very soon. Director Paul Morrissey directed this extremely campy, perpetually inappropriate spinning of the Dracula tale in the early 70s, spurred on by a suggestion from director Roman Polanski, who Morrissey met while promoting one of his films. Suggesting both new interpretations of the Frankenstein and the Dracula mythologies, Morrissey took this idea and laid out plans to shoot both productions back-to-back. Flesh for Frankenstein, released in 1973, became one of the infamous video nasties for its depictions of strong gore and sex, both in images and in themes. The sister film Blood for Dracula is also of the same ilk, though it's considerably less focused on entrails and excessive gore. It was shot in just three weeks, with the shoot beginning a mere day after Flesh for Frankenstein had wrapped. To cover up the fact that Joe D'Alessandro, Udo Kier and Arno Jürging were near enough reprising their roles, they were asked to cut their hair so that they looked at least different enough to be different characters. I can't say that helped though, because it's rather noticeable how close these two films are, merely in style and the approach to the violence. Eagle-eyed viewers may notice as well that the De Fiore's mansion is the same exact mansion from Burial Ground, which we only covered just a few weeks ago. While it is relatively faithful to Dracula's depiction as a Transylvanian count, who's a vampire with no reflection, a lot of the vampire mythology is played with to an extent that rather paints Udo Kier's version uh, from a different breed altogether. Like the usual legend, Dracula requires blood to survive and regenerate his youth, but in this film he's been deprived of blood for so long that he's become quite frail, sickly and decrepit having to resort to makeup and hair dye to regain some semblance of looking alive. This probably has something to do with the blood he requires, as in this version, only virginal girl's blood will sate his thirst. Anything other than this causes him to vomit profusely, as we bear witness to in several situations. Not only that, but his weaknesses have been mostly reduced to mere aversions. Though he walks in the daylight at one point, he covers up with the hooded cowl, which suggested that the sunlight rule still counted. But as soon as he's in his room, sunlight throw flows through and he merely gets irritated by it before closing the shutters. There's also a crucifix hanging on the wall, and after noticing it, he picks it up without injury and just disposes of it. His weakness to garlic is also discussed at dinner as though it were a mere intolerance. So already we can see a lot of the established tropes don't really seem to count in this version. Rather humorously, some added elements to the mix are that he's strictly a vegetarian, outside of his Renfield syndrome anyway, and the approach to sanguine extractions are more sexual than ever, featuring a lot more carnal groaning than any pain squeals. Unlike a lot of the more traditional depictions, Dracula's servant Anton is actually completely normal and human, rather than being some sort of creature himself. And rather than being the noble, just Jonathan Harker, we have Mario, who has his own share of massively dubious behaviour. The main themes of Blood for Dracula are not dissimilar from the sister film Flesh for Frankenstein, which showed how those who perceived class and claimed to have good genes were more morally corrupt than their subordinate circles. 
by indulging in rampant perverted sexual behaviour, proceeding with a doomed plan to create a pure master race, and underestimating the power of the common man. This film is no different, but it emphasises the sexual aspects of class and power. Like the Defure family are first and foremost rich people who've come onto hard times, and trying to keep up appearances is key to their survival. While the Marquisa is staunch in her old-fashioned views, for example saying that all vegetarians are pale, the Marquise is much more modern-minded about the life of his daughters, and goes away to gamble away their fortunes as he wants no part in the archaic arranged marriage. The daughters, while certainly less concerned about their family's plight, are no less as bigoted and scathing of the lower classes, comparing Yugoslavians with gypsies, and being critical of Dracula's foreign Romanian manner. The only exceptions are Esmeralda, who's quite mature and intelligent enough to realise the trouble her family's in, but knowing how the rest of the family treat her due to her spinster status, she opts to ignore their plight and continues to just educate and enrich herself on a personal level. Oddly enough, this makes her ripe for Dracula's attacks, as they both feel obliged to take one for the family, and they're left wanting as a result. And of course, the fact that she's a virgin, as Dracula puts it, really sweetens the deal. Perla is the youngest, at only 14 years old, but she's completely naive and untouched by almost everything corrupt in the family. She follows her mother's requests, she eschews male attention, and she keeps herself to herself, until she's forced to confront the issues in the house when Mario rapes her. Dracula is also an adherent to the bitter outlook on life that the upper classes seem to have, and he's an embodiment of refusing to comply with foreign values when it comes to other countries. He moans about the overly religious population of Italy, he scoffs at the impure salamis and cured meats, and he hates the fact that they pour so much oil on their food. He declares that he much prefers his own country's comforts, like specifically Romanian lettuce or carrots. Even the image of him putting makeup on over his pallid, awful appearance is quite symptomatic of rich upper classes, who look the part on the outside, but are rotten and foul underneath. Mario, on the other hand, is critical of aristocracy, frequently flouting his impressed opinion of revolutions, describing the Russian one with relish when told of of the de Fiore's plight. Almost every situation he's in, he throws in a manifesto line or two, and he chastises the de Fiore family as their wealth will ultimately mean nothing. Even once Dracula's plan is unveiled, Mario wastes no time in blaming the Marquisa for her part in allowing the elderly aristocrat to prey on the youth of her family. While this is very heavy-handed to the point of trying too hard to make him seem like a foil to Dracula, Mario is also no angel, having a very unethical and unhealthy sexual appetite, expressing a desire to rape the virginal Perla, and even getting rough and raping Sophia when she shows resistance. He's almost the hero just by default, because no one else in the film is virtuous enough. But of course, this would all be assuming that the characters were in any way serious. It's literally impossible to take this film to heart, as the players in it are so overblown and they're caricatures at best. The whole film plays out like a Brechtian morality play, with heavy-handed context, overly sexual themes, and a gross depiction of the old establishment preying on the youth of today. So, outside of the deep subtext, we do have a thoroughly entertaining rendition of the Dracula story. Udo Kia's over-the-top accent and tendency to become frenzied and throw a fit are rather entertaining to watch. One of the most entertaining aspects of this, though, are his moments of draining Sephiria and Rabinia of blood. Because, of course, they're not virgins, he ends up vomiting the blood back up. But this is done in such an over-the-top fashion that it's really hard not to laugh. Sephiria and Rabinia are portrayed as quite the tarts, really, not only for the fact that they share the same guy minutes afterwards in the same room, but they also fool around with each other. When Perla asks them about sexually transmitted diseases, Rabinia dismisses her as frigid and that she'll end up like Esmeralda with an outlook like that. Joke's on them, of course, as Mario abuses them frequently, and then they end up being Dracula's telepathically controlled slaves anyway after being bitten which is actually like the original novel where there were three vampiric women under Dracula's control. Mario's off-handed comments about raping Perla and his ceaseless attempts at Marxist soliloquies almost makes you simultaneously gag and gasp, and the way that Anton and Dracula refer to their victims as virgins is also similarly laughter-inducing. Of course, it wouldn't be a campy horror without some bloodshed, so we're treated to several bloodlettings throughout the movie. Particular incidents of note, though, are more conceptually disgusting, 
such as Anton harvesting the blood of a little girl car crash victim using a loaf of bread so that Dracula can suck on it. Another was actually really grim to watch. After Perla is raped by Mario, the blood from her broken hymen drips on the floor, which Dracula crouches down and begins to lap up with his tongue. For a subtle moment, it was pretty squirm-inducing to watch. Then, of course, there's the Grand Guignol-style ending in which Mario hacks Dracula into pieces with an axe, in a manner not unlike the Monty Python scene. He literally ends up just being a trunk left over from his injuries, and he's then staked, ending the film. Overall, if you're a fan of campy horror with a serious, sexy and violent edge to it, really give this a look. I'd certainly recommend Flesh for Frankenstein too, because it's just as bonkers, but it has way more guts in it. Don't expect anything serious, but if you love outrageous horror with a beautiful art house aesthetic, you really can't go wrong with Blood for Dracula. The titular Count Dracula was played by German cult icon Udo Kier, who's been in a treasure trove of both cult movies and mainstreamish films since the 60s. He's rather well known in video nasty forums, as he appeared in four of them himself. Mark of the Devil, Flesh for Frankenstein, which is the sister piece, uh, Expose, or The House on Straw Hill, and finally Argento's Suspiria. He later also cropped up in The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Miss Osborne, Armageddon, Blade, Shadow of the Vampire, Dogville, Mandalay, The Halloween Remake, Mother of Tears, Melancholia, Iron Sky, and Nymphomaniac Volume 2. Paul Morrissey and Andy Warhol's collaborative efforts also found them the talents of Joe D'Alessandro, who played the rather ambivalent rascal Mario. For a long time in that era, D'Alessandro was considered a sex icon, especially amongst a female and a gay male audience as he was one of the first European male actors who had no issue whatsoever with full frontal nudity. Being in European sexy movies also helped spread the word, and he became quite the cult hero, appearing in Flesh, Trash and Heat, which were Morrissey's first cult trilogy, before having appearances in Flesh for Frankenstein, Blood for Dracula, as well as the video nasty Killer Nun. Arno Jürging played the slimy Anton, Dracula's servant. Now, he had a near-identical role in Flesh for Frankenstein, where he played Frankenstein's assistant, Otto. Dominique Darrell, who played Sophia, made an appearance in Death in Venice, while Stefania Cassini, who played Rubinia, is mostly famous for her role as Sarah in Dario Argento's Suspiria, as well as a role on the Giallo film The Bloodstained Shadow. Lastly, the Vestal Perla was played by Sylvia Dionisio, whom we've seen before on Terror Express and Live Like a Cop, Die Like a Man, and she was also infamously married to Ruggiero Diodato. Now, Paul Morrissey was the director of Blood for Dracula, and as mentioned before, he was a big collaborator with pop artist Andy Warhol, whom he met in the mid-60s. While Warhol was mostly a sounding board and ideas man, he was often used as the selling name for Morrissey's films, which at least gave the films an avant-garde connotation that has allowed the films to gain a certain amount of respectable reputation, especially in spite of the subject matter which is more associated with exploitation films. The film was also written by Morrissey, along with his collaborator on Fresh for Frankenstein, Pat Hackett, who also co-wrote the Jed Johnson 1977 film Bad, which was another Warhol production. Producers Andrew Braunsberg, Jean Yan and Jean-Pierre Rassam also worked on Flesh for Frankenstein, while Carlo Ponte we've encountered before when we covered Sergio Martino's Torso. Andy Warhol, of course, was a producer of the film, but he never visited the set even infamously answering, I went to the parties, when someone asked what he contributed to production. The composer was Claudio Gitzi, who only really worked on Flesh for Frankenstein besides this, but the cinematographer was Luigi Cavalia, who not only worked on the aforementioned Flesh for Frankenstein, but also Argento's Deep Red and Fulci's New York Ripper. The editor on the film was Jed Johnson, who'd later direct 1977's Bad, but he also edited Flesh for Frankenstein and also Andy Warhol's other film, Heat. Notably, Italian director Antonio Margheriti was credited as a director on The Italian Prince, whom we encountered before on Killer Fish. It does seem, though, that it was a ploy to gain funding from the Italian government to produce the film, and Margheriti was legally penalised in court proceedings brought against him just a few years later. Finally, the plasma-soaked special effects were done by two people, one of which was Mario Di Salvio, who worked on The Strange Vice of Mrs Ward, The Nun and the Devil, and Umberto Lenzi's Eyeball, 
while the other was Carlo Rambaldi, famous Italian master of effects who created E.T. the Extraterrestrial. He also worked to bring the Xenomorph to life in the original Alien, and even worked on some video nasties like A Bay of Blood and Andrzej Zorlowski's Possession. Blood for Dracula did get a cinematic exhibition in the UK cinemas in 1975, but it was missing around four minutes of footage from the BBFC before they would pass it at Certificate X. This ex-certificate version was released onto pre-cert VHS from Video Gems in 1981, smack dab in the middle of the nasty scare. Not only that, but an uncut release from Vipco followed in 1983, so both versions were circulated at the same time. Now, its sister production, Flesh for Frankenstein, was already banned as a video nasty, so it would be easy to believe that the very similar Blood for Dracula would have been met with something similar, right? I mean, Vipco 2 were the releasing company. They were already in the firing line for their releases of Driller Killer, The Boogeyman, and other assorted nasties. So why was this one not listed as a nasty? Unfortunately for Vipco, this didn't spare the police seizing this title from the shops. Yes, folks, we've got another one. Blood for Dracula was seized after being listed on the personal police lists, and in quite an astounding turn of events, this one actually turned out to be the most frequently seized film that wasn't on the list. Presumably the police assumed that because the films were from the same director, shared most of the same crew, were filmed at the same time with a similar premise, and were even released by the same company, that the films were both of the same ilk. The truth is that both films are incredibly similar, though Flesh for Frankenstein to me has a slightly bigger focus on the gore, which may account for the reason that that ended up on the list. They're both sexually charged though, they're both incredibly campy and silly, and they're both very grisly takes on classic characters. The VHS became banned anyway after the Video Recordings Act became legal, but the uncut version actually became legal when the BBFC passed it in 1995 from Redemption Films. Along with its sister film, Flesh for Frankenstein, Tartan Video brought the film into the DVD era with uncut re-releases in 2006. And that's all, folks, for this week. You've been a generous audience as ever. Thanks to the usual suspect and any new listeners for tuning in. You guys make it really worthwhile. As ever, Nasty Pasty will be back in just one week's time with another brand new theme to encapsulate another duo of disgusting degenerate horrors. Next week, it's quite a bizarre choice for the podcast as we're covering montage horrors. It's not really a genre or a theme as such, but it's more of a reference to the style of the films that I'll be covering. Montages, of course, are a sequence of pictures or images that may or may not have connections, and the two films that we're covering are stylistically similar to montages. The first, Lucio Fulci's Cat in the Brain, is a very fractured horror film consisting of stock footage from Fulci's other films with an equally broken storyline. The second is Joel Reed's Bloodbath, an anthology film from 1976 in which a horror film cast sit down to dinner and swap ghostly stories of murder and monsters. Both have very contrasting styles, but you can find out all about that when Nasty Pasty comes back next Friday. Until then, you can keep in touch with me on Facebook and Twitter. I love talking about anything horror related, either in old school horror or even newer stuff. So hit me up at Nasty Pasty Pod on Twitter, or just search for Nasty Pasty Podcast on Facebook. It'll just pop up, no problem. See you in seven days. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.